Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the trial date set by the controversial judge Aileen Cannon of August the 14th, when Jack Smith's case against Donald Trump will be heard, and discuss the revelations in a Washington Post article that documents how the DOJ's investigations into January 6th and Trump's theft of classified documents were delayed for 15 months by Attorney General Garland and the FBI head Ray, both of whom were bending over backwards to show deference to Donald Trump. Joining us to discuss the delay which has enabled Trump to cast his prosecution as a political attack now that he's running for the presidency is Corey Brettschneider, a professor of political science at Brown University where he teaches constitutional law and politics as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, and his latest book is Decisions and Dissents of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. Then we'll speak with Lawrence Gostin, director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law and university professor at Georgetown University. He directs the World Health Organization's Center on National and Global Health Law and serves on the National Cancer Advisory Board and is the author of the new book, Global Health Security, A Blueprint for the Future. We will discuss his article at the Daily Beast, RFK Jr. would be the worst possible President Kennedy, and how Kennedy's spoiler campaign is being promoted by tech billionaires Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey, and David Sachs. Then finally, we'll assess the chance that China will play a leading role in ending the war in Ukraine as the Ukrainian counteroffensive gets underway, with the Russians much better prepared, suggesting the war is heading for a long stalemate unless a diplomatic settlement emerges. Joining us is Alfred McCoy, who holds the Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the author of a number of bestsellers, the latest of which is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. And we will discuss his article at Tom Dispatch, Is China the Only Way for Peace to Come to Ukraine? It's beginning to look as though Beijing has the means, motivation and ultimate self-interest to end the war. And joining us now is Corey Brettschneider, who's a professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law and politics, as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath in the Office, a guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, and his latest book is Decisions and Dissents of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. Welcome to Background Briefing, Corey Brettschneider. Thanks, Ian. Always a pleasure to join you. Well, thanks for joining us, Corey. And what do you make of the announcement today that the controversial Judge Aileen Cannon will start hearing Jack Smith's case against Donald Trump on August the 14th? Well, I wish I could be optimistic and say, oh, okay, she's uh, turned out to be a neutral judge and we don't have anything to worry about. Uh, I think the truth is that she's got a history of scheduling trials and then rescheduling and delaying. So Donald Trump and his attorneys will surely try to delay this as much as they can. And my worry is that she's trying to cover herself and and making it look like she's moving things speedily along, and then we'll go along with his strategy. I mean, you know, it's worrying that uh, uh, this judge has uh, gotten to preside, given that she's obviously a partisan. I saw a picture of her with a uh, Trump shirt on, which I, I thought seemed legitimate and people could fact check on that but uh certainly we've seen her bias uh previously in the previous rounds of of this investigation and uh, uh yeah i'm worried 
Well, the New York Times uh, did a pretty deep dive into her background and qualifications, which are almost non-existent. Normally, federal judges have a, a lot of legal articles that they have to submit to the Senate Judiciary Committee, and she didn't have any. She literally had no articles that she'd written in any law journals, so the only articles that she submitted were sort of columns from the Miami Herald talking about salsa dancing and tomatoes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part for the course for, for Trump's desire to find judges that were going to be loyal to his um, to him. Uh, primarily, I would say his ideological agenda. I'm not sure he has one, but certainly there was a, a set of requirements, a litmus test when it came to certain policies. But the loyalty to him is particularly, obviously, uh, a worry here. She seems to be uh, not a neutral judge, and, and she's hearing, what, one of the most important cases in American history. Uh, you know, I, it's hard to second guess Jack Smith. I take it that they considered uh, Washington, D.C., but uh, were worried that there could be uh, all sorts of procedural hurdles and a concern that, that he might um, uh, really ruin his case by filing in the wrong venue. And so they've done it here. They knew this was a risk. Uh, but, you know, sometimes the cards don't go the way you want, and, and that's certainly what's happened here. So, Corey, let's talk about this explosive Washington Post article that came out on Monday mm. suggesting that both Attorney General Garland and the FBI head Ray both were bending over backwards to show deference to Trump, and in effect, the investigations into January the 6th and Trump's theft of classified documents were delayed for 15 months, and this enabled now Trump to cast the whole thing in a political light because he's now running for the presidency. So the implication from the article is that they should have moved a lot earlier, and they didn't. And there's speculation as to why they didn't. What was your takeaway? Well, I was worrying as I got into the details, especially, and saw that it involved the denying basic resources of investigators and 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 um, you know what what's needed to run a serious investigation. Uh, you know we know the outlines of what happened on January 6, and especially after the amazing work of the January 6 committee, the details of really Trump's deep involvement in January 6, and more importantly in the broader conspiracy to undermine uh, the election. One great quote is that. Um, what Trump pursued was a, uh, 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 um, a coup in search of a legal theory. And, of course, John Eastman provided that legal theory alongside him, claiming that somehow the vice president of the United States under the 11th Amendment had the uh, complete and sole power to deny, to decide whether electors were legitimate or not and to deny them. And they wanted to use the supposed loophole that this, uh, you know, supposedly brilliant but really con artist, uh, law professor had found uh, to, to uh, decertify the, uh, the, the presidential election. And, um, you know, it doesn't get any more serious than that. And of course, the January 6th committee outlined four crimes that they thought Trump was guilty of, including insurrection. Uh, there was also January 6th itself. I mean, if you listen to that speech that he gave on the ellipse, that sounds to me like incitement to a riot. And they certainly provided evidence uh, of that as well. And, you know, it, it, it's really inexcusable 
that they wouldn't be pursuing this uh, with all the uh, might and resources of the Department of Justice. Now, of course, they were going after uh, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and brought successful prosecutions in those cases, including against Stuart uh, Rhodes. Uh, But as I read the article, the strategy was supposed to be that they would use those low-level prosecutions to try to, um, as you would in a mafia prosecution, to try to show the links to the people higher up. Uh, But that wasn't showing fruit. It wasn't working in the way that they hoped. Why they wouldn't simultaneously be undergoing another investigation of the people at, at the top was really beyond me. And as I said, you know, uh, there are all sorts of strategic decisions within the Department of Justice, and I don't want to pl- claim in any way, none of us should, to be privy to that or to understand the strategy. But when you read that they weren't actually giving the resources to do the basic work, that just seems bizarre and and terrible to me. I mean, what was the reason for that? Uh, you know, that's hard to say. I mean, there is a concern And I worry that Merrick Garland shared it too much about seeming overly partisan. But, of course, this was not a normal partisan election. It was a person uh, trying to engineer a coup, Donald Trump trying to engineer a coup and to not have the resources devoted is really an outrage. I do think, you know, now that that, um, we're in the hands of Jack Smith, the special counsel is appointed uh, to try to distance from the Department of Justice, given that the election is is now um, the, the primary anyway is is uh, under underway and Trump is clearly running. Uh, I don't see him being reluctant to bring um, charges in the January six cases. Uh, he doesn't believe that you know we should stay out of uh, indictment, criminal indictments or criminal matters when it comes to Trump. That's obvious from the records case, but you know maybe he's very behind. Uh, maybe stuff has been lost because it wasn't done at the time. And again, I, I, I'm being modest and saying it's worrying. It's really, it's really a tragedy that, that, um, that this was a moment that really called for swift, courageous, and extensive action and investigation. And it looks like Garland, just from that article anyway, really dropped the ball. Well, it's extraordinary that they focused on going after the underlings and the foot soldiers and not the architects and the planners, and uh, I just was saw a clip today on cable TV of the lead investigator of the January 6th committee, and he said that when they were interviewing Trump's top staff and Pence's top staff from the White House, they've quickly learned that the none of them had been interviewed by the FBI. They couldn't believe it. Yeah, that's that's really shocking. I mean, <laughs> Pence you know, was at the center of this. His life was threatened. He used privy to obviously a lot of information and had been working in the White House with the president for all those years. Uh, And I also think he was probably more ready to talk immediately after it happened in the aftermath of the violence that he was almost caught up in. I I don't know what his disposition is going to be now. And then, you know, this is just common sense, but obviously memory is fresh. You want investigations to happen close to the events. Um, I also think, you know, there's a long history of when it comes to uh, abuse by presidents. Think of Watergate. Um, uh, think of the uh, Reagan administration, Iran-Contra. But, but Congress, you know, and the Department of Justice, or in, in the case of 
uh, Reagan was an independent prosecutor. You know, they, they help each other out. They can um, dig materials up. There, there are, you know, sort of complicated rules about what can be shared. But in my opinion, uh, when you look at Watergate, it was really the combination of the grand jury investigation and Congress that led to Nixon's downfall. And, you know, the idea that, that the DOJ just was sitting back while the uh, Congress was doing its work uh, is, is outrageous. It should have been a dual investigation happening on two fronts at the same time. And, you know, I mean, I, I've said what I think. I mean, it seems to me there are charges that are merited here just from what's publicly available and from what we all saw really was an argument for an indictment, the way that a grand jury would hear it uh, when we listened to the uh, January 6th committee. And, you know, where is that indictment? I, I'm just not sure. Now, you know, I trust Jack Smith after seeing the work that he's done. And, and so maybe it, maybe it is forthcoming um, uh, and, and underway. Well, the Washington Post article points out that in early 2021, the Justice Department rejected a federal watchdog proposal to investigate evidence its office had found suggesting a coordinated effort to swing the election for Trump using slates of alternate electors. So we know about the phony elector slates, but anybody yes, that has yeah. even a cursory understanding of the law must know that it's it's against the law to forge those kind of high-level documents involving the fate of an American election and handing over fake documents to the vice president, or in, in many cases trying to literally sneak them in to the state houses to be sent along as the real item. I mean, this is the most dangerous kind of counterfeiting fraud that you could possibly undertake, and I'm astounded that the DOJ didn't move on it. Yeah, and we saw the recommendations at the end of the January 6th committee that included insurrection, about the most serious charge that you could get in relation to, to a coup, the, the appropriate charge, uh, obstruction of Congress. And, you know, all of this was by design. The, these electors were, the attempt was to submit them with this fake theory of what the vice president, the sole discretion of the vice president to act. Uh, I believe uh, in that article or another recent one, and the post too, there was an account of a war room that the Trump team was uh, gathering together to try to, you know, basically push this conspiracy through, uh, you know, by coordinating the electors, the role of the states and submitting the, as you rightly call them, fake slate of electors. They were claiming they were real, of course. Um, and, you know, where is all of this? Why, why, why is the Department of Justice not, not, not devoting just huge amounts of its resources? I mean, they they went after so many of the rioters. I applaud that, by the way. I don't think that was a mistake. But the idea that you wouldn't do that simultaneously to going after the leaders of this uh, wider conspiracy is, is, is a real mistake. And that we left it to uh, Liz Cheney and the members of the committee who did an amazing job. But the whole point of that committee was to try to convince Merrick Garland or uh, his staff in the Department of Justice that the case was so overwhelming, it would be embarrassing if they didn't indict in the January 6th case. And the fact that they haven't indicted yet, I think, is embarrassing. And, and you know, that wasn't supposed to be the effect of the hearing. It was supposed to get them to act. But instead, they've chosen the route of embarrassment. 
And of course, the decision to charge militia members who were at the Capitol with seditious conspiracy on the theory that prosecutors thought it would pressure them into implicating people higher up, that was slowed down by the the Republicans stopping the confirmation of Biden Justice Department officials, and they waited had to wait months for Senate confirmation of senior leaders. But you were mentioning earlier, Corey, the the fact that the Washington field office was twice rebuffed in 2021 when the federal prosecutors asked for FBI agents. Then in November, they also asked asked for agents to investigate how Trump associates tried to overturn the election results and were again rebuffed. So they were rebuffed in February and in November. That's pretty extraordinary. It is. I mean, you know, we have the biggest political crime, maybe the biggest in, in American history, certainly one of them we could talk about rivals, but this is, this is certainly up there. And yet, where are the resources that they're being given to going after these low level people with the thought that maybe they they would lead us to the higher level officials? But, but uh, you know, I, it's beyond me why you wouldn't be doing it simultaneously. It's not, it's not either or. It's, it should well, be one that's... investigation. Right, but that's Christopher Ray, um, yeah, who is a Republican. I mean, it's pretty strange that they're worried about appearing partisan when I, Ray is a Republican, and I'm. I think also Garland is. Well, it's not, I'm not quite sure on that. Yeah, so, I mean, I think of Garland as an institutionalist. He's, of course, was nominated to be on the Supreme Court and <laughs> is is denied that role. But you know, this this certainly is worrying. I guess I would put it, I don't think it's necessarily unlike Ray, I think you know, and Garland is of course the head of the Justice Department, so that's really the puzzle to me. Why is he dragging his feet? And my guess is that it's this real worry about in, the institution of the Department of Justice worrying about seem, seemingly seeming overly partisan, and so going after the low-level people who committed the riot as a lead-in to this wider investigation, maybe that's what they thought, but the bottom line is it was just overly reticent, and there's a sense in which you can be so concerned about seeming partisan that you don't do your basic duty, and that duty is to defend democracy. And, uh, you know, Garland just looks terrible as a result of this investigation. Well, Corey Bretschneider, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure. Well, thank you, Corey. And again, I've been speaking with Corey Bretschneid, who's a professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law and politics, as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. And his latest book is Decisions and Dissents of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. Getting a brief station break, we're back looking into RFK Jr.'s presidential run and how Kennedy's spoiler campaign is being promoted by tech billionaires Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey, and David Sachs.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lawrence Gostin, who's the director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law and a university professor at Georgetown University. He directs the World Health Organization Center on National and Global Health Law and serves on the National Cancer Advisory Board. And he has an article of the Daily Beast, RFK Jr. would be the worst possible President Kennedy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Gostin. Pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And it would be easy to dismiss RFK Jr. as a conspiracy theorist. However, he's polling at about 20%. So what does that tell you, Lawrence? Are Democratic voters nervous about Biden or are they possibly embracing the kind of ridiculous stuff that Bobby Kennedy Jr. stands for? Well, you know... um... In these partisan politics days, you know, everybody, including the, your your pet dog, can get 20%. And particularly um, those who engage in conspiracy theories, because you've got a lot of conspiracists now. And uh, he, he, he's made his trademark um, to be an anti-vaccinationist. He... He was, you know, one of the original anti-vaxxers, um, even well, well before COVID, spinning absolute yarns about um, uh, the relationship between measles and autism and any any kind of unscientific bunk that you can think of. Um, it's sad because, you know, he, he trades on the Kennedy name, and so he's probably going to get a few young Democrats um, he's going to get Republicans who um, believe in that kind of conspiracy. Um, and uh, it's kind of just a sad reflection on America that a person like that that um, could get traction. Well, you know, he may not be the only one that'll run. It's possible that uh, Joe Manchin and or Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema could run. It's also possible that Lieberman, Senator Lieberman could run. I mean, the Biden vote could be split in this election. I think, you know, you have to assume the worst, particularly with Joe Manson. Yeah, you know, the thing is, um, the most important thing is, is that if somebody runs as a Democrat in the primary, like um, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. is trying to do, um, they'll almost certainly lose, and Biden won't be hurt by it at all. He'll just ignore it like a, like a fly. Um, but the big issue is is whether or not somebody um, like a Joe Manchin or a Lieberman will run as an in, as in, in, in the kind of no labels party, um, because the electorate is so closely split that. Even if you took a small slice of it, just a few hundred or thousand votes in, in say, you know, a Michigan that could or a Wisconsin that could swing things um, would be disastrous. Um, you know, remember when Ralph Nader took on a third party candidacy and completely destroyed um, his long deserved reputation as a consumer advocate. This is something that we do need to take seriously because Biden 
really does need every vote you can get. Otherwise, we might have a possibly convicted politician being elected as president. And that doesn't bode very well for the nation. Well, as you write uh, in your Daily Beast piece, Lawrence Guston, RFK Jr. would be the worst possible President Kennedy that Donald Trump, if he were elected or re-elected, could get behind RFK Jr.'s first appointing him as head of the vaccine safety panel. Then Donald Trump couldn't get behind RFK's first appointment, appointing him as head of the vaccine safety panel, but then backing away. And now Kennedy wants to use the platform to run for president to amplify his anti-science agenda. RFK Jr. would never have received the public attention and his ability to raise so much money to fuel disinformation campaigns had it not been for the Kennedy name. So there's also uh, reports that there are a lot of tech billionaires like Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey, formerly of Twitter, and David Sachs, the right-hand guy of uh, Elon Musk. So he he could join ranks with Trump, could he not? He could. Um, as you say, at one point, then President Trump was going to appoint Kennedy, you know, to review uh, COVID and other vaccines. Um, and he backed away from that. Um, but a second Trump presidency, um, I think there would be no backing away. And I try not to be overtly political because that's not my um, space. But uh, I know anti-science when I see it. Um, And I know that a fact is a fact. Um, And vaccines, including the COVID vaccine uh, and the measles vaccine and a whole range of others, are the greatest public health and medical miracle of the 20th century. Um, They save more lives than you can even imagine uh, in the United States and worldwide. And the constant chipping away um, by, by people who... Um, have conspiracy theories on who, who literally have nothing to stand on. Let me just give you an example. It's a really good example. Um, you know, many, many years ago, um, there was a, a doctor in England called Andrew Wakefield um, who published a, a piece in The Lancet, a very well-known medical journal, um, establishing a link between autism and um, the measles vaccine. Uh, And that got enormous traction. Well, um, the Lancet ultimately withdrew the article because it was fabricated and false. He was stripped of his medical license um, and still the link uh, lingered, including notably and and especially um, Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, and then the idea was is that there was a, a mercury preservative called thimerosal um, that was in the vaccine, and that was supposed to be the thing that caused autism. There were 20 studies that reviewed by the National Academy of Sciences that showed it was complete bunk. And then CDC removed thimerosal from the vaccine. But did that end the controversy? No. Um, and so you're just not talking about logic. Um, the COVID vaccine has saved so many lives. And even in, you know, among my, you know, really 
close, highly educated friends. You have ideas that you just don't know where they came from um, about why there are dangers to the COVID vaccine. And so this is all caused by, um, you know, a lot of big money, Elon Musk and others, a lot of famous people like Robert Kennedy or Joe Rogan um, just spewing out falsehoods. And it's as if it doesn't matter between truth and falsehood, as it, as it doesn't matter what the scientific studies say. Um, if you just say a lie, often enough, people will believe it. And that's where we are now. It's very sad for me because I've spent my I've spent my whole career um, in public health, and I've you know and I grew up in an era um, when you know childhood diseases were killing kids and making people sick. I grew up during the um, polio scare when I was very very young. Um, Jonas Salk was regarded as a hero, and people lined up in schools and. And, and hospitals and, and, and trade union um, uh, uh, rooms to get vaccinated and roll up their sleeves. And now we have this, a similarly great in, in, uh, discovery in the COVID vaccine. Um, and, you know, Anthony Fauci is a traitor um, and things like that. It's just makes no sense and for those of us who's grown up in an era where, you know, there used to be a whole lot of disease and death before vaccines, before science, before public health interventions, and to see that all unravel, it's just very sad for me. Well, Ron DeSantis, who's running for the presidency, yeah. uh, recently used the word Fauciism as a play on fascism. The idea that Fauci, who dedicated his entire life to saving people's lives, could be vilified and become a poster boy for this anti-woke crusade that DeSantis is engaged in is just so sick. But, I mean, there are consequences in as much as these anti-vaxxers and, and followers of, of RFK Jr., uh, apparently, they just attacked uh, Peter Hotez, the founding dean and chief of the Baylor National School of Tropical Medicine, and he apparently was stalked in front of his house by a couple of anti-vaxxers. They were taunting him to debate RFK Jr. on Joe Rogan's podcast, and of course, Joe Rogan and also Elon Musk have challenged uh, Hotez to debate Robert Kennedy Jr., so it's getting dangerous, apart from the fact that it's so disgustingly anti-intellectual to make an equivalence between a, a well-known scientist and a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, well, I mean, I've known Tony Fauci for over 40 years, right from the very first moments of the AIDS pandemic. And I know Peter Hotez very well as well. Um, you know, they're people of integrity. Um, um, they're scientists. Um, and yes, uh, what's going on um, is not very pleasant. Um, Tony, for example, needs security details for himself and his family. One of the CDC directors, in fact, was not able to board a plane um, because the stewards refused to fly it. Uh, we're getting to 
a, a state of being absurd in America. We're losing our civility, our cordiality, our respect for facts, and also our respect for science and scientists. That's not to say that scientists don't sometimes get it wrong, but by and large, they try to get it right. They're doing it for the well-being of the public. They have no ulterior motives. Um, And they have great honesty and integrity. Um, And yet they're vilified. I can't tell you how many you know, state and local public health professionals who've who've spent their entire lives doing nothing but trying to keep the public healthy and safe at at meager pay, um, just being hounded out of office. Well, it's frightening that uh, these tech billionaires and others are weighing in along with uh, this cretin, uh, Joe Rogan, who offered to donate $100,000 to a charity of Peter Hotez's choice if he would debate RFK Jr. on uh, Joe Rogan's show with no time limit. And then Elon Musk weighs in and said that Hotez is afraid of a public debate because he knows he's wrong. And then this billionaire hedge fund manager, Bill Ackman, tweeted, I will add $150,000 to Joe Rogan's wager. So now... 250000 can go to charity and the public can hear an open debate on an important topic. So they're all throwing money uh, at this insanity. And, of course, unfortunately, money talks. Yeah, I know. It's very it's kind of sad. Um, I think some of these guys have kind of gone over the rails. I mean, uh, Elon Musk is... You know, he built some really important and good companies um, like Tesla. And why he's straying into this field of anti-science and conspiracy theories, I I can't get inside his head. Right. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Uh, It's a very unfortunate situation with our politics and and this jihad against science that's going on as America becomes more and more of an idiocracy, I'm afraid. I thank you for joining us, uh, Lawrence Costin. Thanks for having me, and take care. You too. Bye. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Lawrence Gostin, who's the director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law and a university professor at Georgetown University. He directs the World Health Organization Center on National and Global Health Law and serves on the National Cancer Advisory Board. And he has an article of the Daily Beast, RFK Jr. would be the worst possible President Kennedy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing the chance that China will play the leading role in ending the war in Ukraine.
Can you tell me where we're heading? Lincoln County Road or Armageddon? Seem like I've been down this way before. Is there any truth in that, senor? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alfred McCoy, who holds a Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is the author of a number of bestsellers, the latest of which is To Govern the Globe, World Orders, and Catastrophic Change. And he has an article at Tom Dispatch, Is China the Only Way for Peace to Come to Ukraine? It's beginning to look as though Beijing has the means, motivation, and ultimate self-interest to end the war. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alfred McCoy. Ian, great to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Alan. Do you think that uh, the readout from the recent meetings in Beijing with uh, Secretary of State Blinken and Chinese Foreign Minister and Wang Yi, their top diplomat, and uh, also Xi Jinping, sort of indicated that they've agreed to sort of stop the 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 downward slide of the relationship. Uh, there's some more meetings coming up of American officials. Janet Yellen's going to be going there. The Commerce Secretary's going to be going there. And, and also John Kerry, the climate change envoy, if you will, he'll be going as well. They did discuss, apparently, Ukraine. But what's your sense then of, of whether or not You've made a pretty good case that China's the one that can bring Russia to the table. Do you think the U.S. also be able to bring Ukraine to the table? Uh, well, first of all, China would, I think, have the independent means to bring Ukraine to the table. Before the fighting started, uh, China was Ukraine's leading trading partner uh, for both imports and exports. Uh, Ukraine had a, a growing industrial sector in which China was a participant, and also Ukraine is a major exporter of grains and uh, vegetable oils, uh, found a, a substantial market in China. China is the world's largest importer, not only of oil, but also of wheat. And so Ukraine is, is one of the world's major exporters of wheat. So that gives China ample leverage, ample, ample entree to Ukraine. But to go back to what you were talking about there, um, in that conversation between U.S. Secretary of State Blinken and, I believe, Xi Jinping, produced a marked change in tone um, in Washington. Uh, last February, when China announced that it would be conducting a kind of diplomatic offensive to serve as the broker and settle the, the war between Ukraine and Russia, the U.S. was, well, not so muted in its mockery of this position. Uh, U.S. Uh, uh, National Security Advisor Jake S Sullivan shot back and said, yeah, the war can stop when Russia stops invading Ukraine, kind of dismissing China. And there was lots of dismissal. Uh, even the head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, was, said that, that China was a partisan and was on Russia's side and was, in effect, a peace broker. But the, the conversations in Beijing between Blinken, Xi Jinping, Wang Yi, and others has produced a real change. For the first time, a top official in Washington has spoken positively about China's role as a negotiator. Uh, and Blinken said that, you know, 
made some very positive comments in that regard. And this is a, a real change in tone and a real signal, uh, I think, that Washington is willing to entertain Beijing as a, as a broker seriously. And you know, this is not um, uh, Beijing's first rodeo in this regard. Last March, uh, Beijing accomplished an extraordinary diplomatic breakthrough. The dominant rivalry in the Middle East was, has been for decades but uh, is, is a product of an Islamic sh- a sectarian rivalry between Shia Iran and Sunni Saudi Arabia. Uh, they had cut diplomatic relations. They were fighting through uh, uh, via surrogates in Yemen. And uh, uh, in March, the foreign ministers of both Iran and Saudi Arabia came to Beijing, uh, and Wang Yi, the, the top foreign affairs official, uh, presided over a conference, and they restored diplomatic relations. And China was in a position to do so because it has a $400 billion development deal for Iran's infrastructure. I mean, it's Iran's biggest creditor by far. And also, China is the world's, is, is the top importer of Saudi Arabia's oil. So again, that places China in a position where it's got leverage in both courts and was able to bring the parties together. And it's a similar situation between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, China is the top importer of Russia's oil, and before the war, it was the top trade partner with Ukraine. So it's in a very similar position. And that that similarity, that position, puts China in a position where it can not only offer diplomatic offices, but it has incentives it can offer in terms of investment and trade relations. Well, the uh, Chinese were also apparently behind the uh, trip recently of the African leaders that went both first to uh, Kiev and then to Moscow. And obviously the African leaders ha- have good reason to be concerned about this war because it has disrupted grain and fertilizer shipments. And the world hunger, is, as your article points out, world hunger has doubled to an estimated 345 million people in facing starvation, while basic food insecurity now afflicts 828 million inhabitants of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. So this is a serious situation. Yeah, the, uh, it's also a serious situation for China. Um, China has become the, the largest creditor uh, to that half of humanity that is suffering food insecurity. Okay, so uh, since 2013, China launched the Belt and Road Initiative, and it began lending money for development loans, which has now reached a, a trillion dollars. And there's 148 nations worldwide that have received this development aid, which has become, by the way, the largest source of development aid, way overshadowing the World Bank way overshadowing the Asian Development Bank and every other Western-sponsored institution. And China's invested very heavily in African infrastructure. Indeed, China's first foreign aid initiative uh, under the current regime, the People's Republic of China, started in the early 1970s with the construction of the Tanzan Railroad, basically two-thirds of the way across the heart of Africa. It was a massive infrastructure project, and and China has been dealing with Africa, not as a exploiter or a, a kind of a charity case, but as a serious economic partner for over half a century now, and that gives China enormous leverage with Africa, and enormous stake in the stability of Africa, because those loans 
are now comprising up to about 20% of gross domestic product in countries like uh, Ghana and Zambia. Uh, it's made critical investment in arguably the poorest and most feared insecure, insecure part of Africa in Ethiopia, uh, Kenya, uh, and Sudan. So they're, you know, they're investing tremendously in infrastructure, particularly in Ethiopia and Kenya, uh, rails, factories, ports, etc. Uh, so China's got a real stake in Africa's stability, and that stability, the, the capacity of Africa to, to make those loan payments uh, is directly dependent upon being able to import grain from Ukraine at a low cost and feed their populations in a reasonable way. And when those grain prices go up, those governments have to take money away from their loan repayments, which places China's credit in a bit of insecurity. So China's got a real stake in the stability of this entire Eurasian and African region. Uh, and and a, a real motivation, unlike any other major power, in order to resolve the conflict. Uh, well, for example, I, I know people who deal with Zimbabwe, and Zimbabwe is run by a criminal called the Crocodile, who used to feed Mugabe's uh, political enemies to the crocodiles. And he's a total crook. And the Chinese have, have now run the biggest uh, lithium mine in Africa, and they basically just paid this guy off, gave him money, and have, have complete control. And I mean, how much does China, because of its disregard for human rights and, and the rule of law, etc., have an advantage over... I mean, it's true that the statistics you've just told us are extraordinary, how much more aid they give compared to the West... But do they have an advantage in the sense that they can deal with these crooks that we consider beyond the pale? Yeah, China, and I think that's a, a distinguishing feature of what we might say is an emerging Chinese world order. Uh, the Western liberal world order uh, has um, made, if you will, membership in good standing conditional upon things like human rights, good governance, uh, in, in, in fiscal integrity of institutions. And so you have to reach a certain standard of performance to qualify for loans uh, from uh, whether it's the Asian Development Bank or the World Bank. Right? There, there are conditions, and also from uh, U.S. aid and uh, U.S. loans from the Export-Import Bank in the United States. China doesn't do that. It's a completely contractual relationship. You know, you have something we want and we have something you need and we are going to do business regardless of the way you treat women or minorities or your citizenry uh regardless of your human rights situation and regardless of your um your fiscal property so that gives china an entree to um to, to nations that are struggling with development and struggling with governance that the west doesn't have and can't have under its laws and regulations. Yeah, so that's part of the reason why China has been able to invest now what is well over $1 trillion in these 148 nations concentrated across Eurasia and Africa and in some parts of Latin America as well because the West can't lend under their regulations of the World Bank or the European and U.S. institutions. They have certain qualifications. Yeah, so... That, but that also, I mean, that to go back to where we were, China's now got about 25 uh, loans outstanding, those trillion dollars in loans, because it's not, they're not giving it away. They're, they're, they're low-cost loans, but loans nonetheless. 
and the repayment on those loans is equivalent to about 25% of China's GDP. Many of the recipient countries, like Zimbabwe, um, uh, Kenya, Ethiopia, have about 20% of their GDP in loan repayments. And so China is, if you will, very dependent upon the stability of this system and these poor countries in order to maintain the the return on in, on its investments and its capacity to make new investments. And that gives China a very strong motivation in resolving this conflict because Russia has indicated, for example, that what's called the, the Black Sea Grain Initiative, all right, that in the midst of this war, which is being fought on the northern shore of the Black Sea, the UN has and Turkey have been able to broker shipments of grains and fertilizers coming across the Black Sea and entering into international markets, feeding North Africa, feeding the Horn of Africa, and feeding poor nations worldwide with reliable, affordable grain, which is you know, a fundamental staff of their, of their lives, of their diets. And Russia has now announced that the Black Sea Grain Initiative is not working for them and they're going to cut it and they'll, they'll make some other accommodation. So there's trouble on the horizon. You know, there's trouble on the horizon. Moreover, the fighting in Ukraine, as we just saw with the detonation of that massive reservoir, eliminated roughly uh, a million acres of prime agricultural land from production and turned it into a kind of a, a, a soggy desert uh, as the floods have covered what should be prime production land for grains for international markets. I mean... I, I don't think most people appreciate how the deep, rich, black soils of Ukraine have become literally the breadbasket of the world. And by that, we mean the poorer countries of the world. Right? And, and it's the, those shipments are what creates stability in otherwise unstable and volatile lands where people are right at the brink of, between starvation and survival. So in terms of the war itself, though, you're pointing out, and I agree with you, that it's quite likely that the Russians have learned from their earlier mistakes and they build a formidable network of trenches and tank traps. And it's not entirely clear to me that this Ukrainian counteroffensive is going to uh, drive Russia out of Ukraine and out of Crimea. And also you point out that despite U.S. and European sanctions, Russia's economy has actually continued to grow, while Ukraine's, which was only about a tenth the size of Russia's, has shrunk by 30%. Facts like these mean just one thing is likely, stalemate. So you see both the stalemate and that you think that might essentially be the wake-up call to make a peace deal? that's not going to go anywhere and that's and not going to end up like I, I just talked to an historian from Oxford University I think it was yesterday or the day before yesterday she has a piece in foreign affairs that there are similarities with World War One. not just that this is trench warfare where soldiers are deep in mud on these static trench lines but also the architects of these wars uh, with Putin on having invaded Ukraine thinking he'd win in a, in a few days, and Kaiser Wilhelm and the military thinking they would be in Paris in 42 days, and uh, years later, the war slogged on. So that's what we're facing, are we not, now? Yeah, first of all, I think if you look back on, on the various diplomatic positions, okay, who are the brokers that could affect a, 
a negotiation. Okay, there's basically four powers in the world that can do this. I mean, the UN in theory, but Russia's on the Security Council and it's a combatant in the war, so that's out. So eliminate the UN. So we come back to sort of classic great power diplomacy. Who's got the clout economically, militarily, and politically to negotiate a settlement? And there's only four powers on the planet that have that. The European Union, the United States, Russia, and China. Well, Russia's a combatant. The European Union has committed itself uh, to to Ukraine's victory, uh, emptying their arsenals to arm Ukraine. Uh, Washington's done the same. So that leaves only one power on the planet who's who's sort of a bit more objective, a bit more dispassionate, a bit less committed. Now, so basically the EU and, and the United States together have put their money, literally, on this idea of the uh, substantial gains from the spring counteroffensive, which is now sputtering forward. And if you look at Washington's strategy, as uh, was was basically in Washington and, the, and Brussels strategy combined, was the idea that Ukraine, having repulsed the Russian invasion, knocked them from their back from capturing the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. There is, I think, this anticipation of big gains. Also, you know, uh, Ukraine not only Ukraine has had three major victories. One, it knocked back this massive Russian invasion from uh, keeping their capital. Next, they had a, a stunning offensive around Kharkiv in northeastern Ukraine and captured substantial amount of territory. And then they pushed the Russians in the south out of Kherson. So they've had three major victories. All right. So I think the West has been banking on substantial gains on the part of Ukraine. Well, you know, first of all, Russia may be inept, but they are not hopeless as a military. They've learned from mistakes. Uh, while they, the while Ukraine has been accomplishing these victories, the Russians have specialized trenching machines that have built these elaborate multi-tier defensive systems with concrete dragon's teeth to stop tanks fortified positions they've moved some better troops into defensive positions more also more broadly when you look at this historically you know over the past century modern warfare moves between cycles when defense and offense have comparative advantage world war 1 famously because of barbed wire and the machine gun that meant that the tactics of defense could uh, defeat the the tactics of offense which is why they got mired in that killing ground where the war moved a kilometer or two either way for four years, okay? Then in World War II, the the Nazis came up with the blitzkrieg of motorized infantry behind tanks, smashing through the world's most elaborate defensive fortification, the Maginot Line. And what we've seen in Ukraine, I think arguably, is when that massive kind of blitzkrieg-like Russian invasion, which turned out to be, you know, not too much of a blitz, lots of krieg, but not too much blitz, right? The Ukrainian troops, infantry, armed with shoulder-fired missiles, could knock out tanks. So that was a sign that the tactics of defense have now shifted once again. So when Ukraine was on the defense, they were winning. Now Russia's on the defense, and they have, you know, if you will, the same tactical advantage that Ukraine had in defending Kiev. So this 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 lightning spring counteroffensive is on the balance of probability is going to become mired in the 
in the mud and become a slog with lots of death on both sides, bringing us to the point in about six, maybe 12 months, where everybody's going to wake up and realize that, you know what, maybe diplomacy is necessary. And at that moment, all eyes in the world are going to turn to Beijing, and Beijing will have been working sedulously, quietly, and they'll be the sole power in position to affect these negotiations. And that will signal to everybody in the world that there's a new great power on the planet in a way that I don't think people quite fully realize. Well, Alfred McCoy, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, Ian, it's been a pleasure, really, as always. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Alfred McCoy, who holds a Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the author of a number of bestsellers, the latest of which is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. And he has an article at Tom Dispatch, Is China the Only Way for Peace to Come to Ukraine? It's beginning to look as though Beijing has the means, motivation and ultimate self-interest to end the war. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Yeah.